Thank you for joining us for another episode of our SDBC podcast. Today, we have the privilege of talking with Andrew Neufeld from Alongside You about the topic of mental health. Andrew Neufeld is a registered clinical counselor and the executive director at Alongside You. As well, he's a dedicated member of the community of South Delta and an elder at Ladner Baptist Church. In this episode, we will discuss the stigma surrounding mental health, how COVID has impacted us, and we will discuss the church's role on this topic. We hope you find this episode helpful and thought-provoking. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of SCBC Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. Mary and I are super excited for this. Um, Andrew Neufeld from Alongside You. Their office is in Ladner, but their uh, influence and impact goes far beyond just Ladner. And I know you've been very busy, Andrew. But um, <laughs> can you just tell our listeners something about you that maybe we should know as we go into this podcast and what Alongside You does specifically in our community? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is great. I, I love the conversation we're going to have. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Paul, you and I have talked for years about mental health in the church, and it's it's definitely close to my heart. And, and so, it, I mean, our story of how we came to be and what I do is... I, what I do is an interesting question at this point. I, my official title used to be human Swiss army knife because <laughs> um, it's kind of my job. Um, but uh, my background is a registered clinical counselor. Um, and uh, we started uh, a nonprofit counseling center in Richmond in 2006 with a family friend who had been a counselor for years. Um, and this was when I was uh, in grad school. Um, and so we did that. It's still running. We've handed it off and it's still running out in Langley. Cedar Springs Counseling, it's another great resource. Um, and uh, and then uh, long story short, um, in 2011, my wife and I got in a car accident that ended her career. Um, just split second, done. Um, and so uh, that's been a journey. And uh, she was pretty much fully incapacitated for a year where she was pretty much on a couch for a year um, or in bed or a combination of both. And then uh, it took really five years before she got to a point where she's like, well, I know I can't go back to what I was doing, um, but maybe I could do something. And like, what would that look like? So her background, uh, I, it's going to be hard for me not to talk about her this whole time because (laughs) I just think she's the best human in the world. Um, but, uh, she was an anthropologist, um, and her area of expertise is first nations art in the art market. Um, and so she was teaching at UBC and Douglas college in anthropology and doing research and working in the museum of anthropology at the time of the accident. And so, um, she did what she did best and she started researching and, uh, in February of 2015, she kind of walked over to me in my home office and uh, dumped a stack of research about a foot high on my <laughs> desk. And she says, you know, I've been, I've been researching art and creativity and recovery from mental health, physical mm. health. Um, <laughs> have you read it? And I'm like, well, not specifically, <laughs> but why don't you tell me what it says? And, uh, and so she started explaining to me what she was finding. And she's like, why is nobody doing this? And she's looking into, um, yeah, bringing people into art studios and and using art to help people recover. And so, uh, so I was like, huh, that's interesting. Okay, I'm going to read this. So I started reading, and, and I kind of came to the same conclusion. Why is nobody doing this? Um, and so we looked around for people who were doing it, and we couldn't find anybody. We found one outfit who does it 
on hospital wards in the hospitals in Vancouver. And so we connected with them and sort of heard, okay, what are they doing? Meanwhile, um, I had a small private practice uh, at our nonprofit in Richmond, but I also had an office here in Ladner inside a, a maternity clinic of all things. And, uh, and, but I, my main gig was at, uh, in the health authorities, working for um, the government and various health authorities at the time. And I'm not a bureaucracy guy. Um, I really struggle with red tape and levels and all that stuff. I'm, I'm really glad they're there. Um, and I did my 10 years, but I was kind of hitting my limit of the bureaucracy. And what it really was, was I was hitting my limit for being, having a tolerance for saying no and just turning people away. Like it, I, we'll probably get into this later on, but like I have a serious hang up with turning people away. Um, and sometimes in unhelpful ways, I have a hang up about this. And so I was kind of hitting my limit and uh, we, we'd moved out here to South Delta in 2006 um, while I was still studying and, and she was working and we always wanted to do something in our home community. Um, but we wanted to do something, as much as I believe in counseling, obviously I'm biased because it's what I do all day long, um, but we also know that healing is holistic. Um, and holistic, and, and our bent, you know, I know there's lots of different ways for healing, and I'm not here to say what's good and what's bad or, or anything else, but our bent, because of our backgrounds in research and in university, is um, we want it to be evidence-based where we can say, here's what we're doing, here's why we're doing it, and here's the evidence we can point to that tells you this works. Um, and so we said, okay, what could we do? So we started dreaming. And long story short, we looked at each other in March and said, okay, like, are we gonna do this? Is this the time? And we really felt God lay on our hearts. This is the time to do this. So in typical fashion for us, I gave notice in April to my job. We incorporated in May. I left my job in June. We found a space in July and we opened in August. Um, I do not recommend our approach to anybody because it's kamikaze and it's really not for the faint of heart. Um, I remember we opened in August and they were still renovating, but my office was finished. So we'd walk our clients through a construction zone into my office. And so, uh, so that's how we started alongside you and Ladner. We started in 2015 on a day and a half of my clients and uh, hope and a prayer. And my, we built an art studio in our clinic for my wife, mainly for her to recover in, because um, we still weren't sure what her trajectory was gonna be like. And quite frankly, we still aren't. Um, but we just said, okay, we're gonna build an art studio and this is gonna be for you to recover in and, and to read the research and see what comes in. Whatever comes out in terms of business is just gravy. Um, and like, let's see what happens. Let's see how this gets used to help people. And so uh, we started there. We, uh, our first hire was actually a counselor from our nonprofit. I sent her a text and I said, so when are you gonna come work for me? Um, and so she started working in both places. And actually today uh, was her last day with us because she's now started her own clinic, oh, wow. Wow. which is awesome. Like yeah. that actually excites me. Oh, that's good. Um, and so, uh, so we, we grew our team there. We were in 1700 square feet and three people. And now we're in over 4,000 square feet and 24 people. Yeah. Wow. And it's yeah. God's just doing some really amazing things that blows our minds. Yeah, I, I mean, we've we've been invited by you and Meg to come and uh, check out what you're doing out in along, alongside you. Um, so we got to tour the facilities and all that stuff, but also hear all the stories of what you guys are doing. But I love also that it's not just alongside you that you're involved in, like you said, your home community. Like my wife's a teacher in mm. the Delta School District. Right. So she told me when I told her that we're doing this today, 
um, she said, yeah, Andrew's got lots of fans um, in the Delta <laughs> School District because you're very involved with the school districts yeah. as well. Mm -hmm. And I know you've had lots of opportunities to speak to them and help them and support them with their students and their needs and the families. And also, I know that you're very involved with Adler Baptist Church, of course, being an mm -hmm. elder there. And um, I know you and Meg both have done programs um, especially with the families in Lander Baptist and the community. Mm -hmm. And I've always from, even from a distance, I've always thought, man, that's so awesome that a church is really leading in this um, and helping families, helping individuals, helping people find the community that they need and find mm -hmm. the support and resources they need um, to overcome some of the challenges that we all have and that yeah. we all go through. So I'm so excited about this. I know Mary, yeah, you're excited definitely. about this. So yeah. let's, let's, let's fire away with some of our questions. Yeah, absolutely. So like Paul mentioned earlier, our goal of this conversation is just to have an open dialogue about mental health, mental health in the church. Um, so let's just start it out by talking about COVID, which has just recently impacted our community in a huge way. Um, let's just chat about what impact has COVID had on mental health in our community? Man, where do we even start? <laughs> I know, big <laughs> I, question. When I was thinking about that question, I'm like, we could spend all day on this yeah. one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's done a few things. Mm. Um, I think it's put mental health at the forefront which I think is a really positive thing. You know, certainly I'm like everybody else. When I think COVID, like the positive is not the first thing that comes to my mind. Mm -hmm. um, but there have been positives. So the, the upside is I think we're seeing mental health pushed to the forefront. And like, this isn't going to be something that disappears when, when the COVID, you know, right. is kind of more contained and we've got our vaccines mm -hmm. and we kind of get back to whatever the new normal is. Um, it's going to be a long standing thing. You know, when you look at brain research, like our brains are not just going to go, okay, great. COVID's over. We're back to normal. Life's grand. That's not how human beings work. Um, but so I'm encouraged because, um, like the numbers are astounding. You know, I know even for our clinic, like the referrals we're getting now, like we, we cannot keep up and we are referring out as best we can so that people aren't waiting mm -hmm. and we're hiring like crazy, trying to increase our ability to meet demand. But it's like everybody I talk to, it's the same story. You know, I know the public mental health is just, I mean, they always have wait lists and now it's just off the charts. Right. You know, I used to have pull with psychiatrists because I know a bunch of them where I'd call them up, you know, on their cell phone. Hey, how's it going? What you doing? Mm -hmm. You know, I got this client um, and now it's like, these people I know who like, they will move heaven and earth, you know, for me if I call and vice versa. It's like, I'm sorry, like I've got a 14 month waiting list and there's nothing I can do, you know? And, and, and so I see the positive and the negative, but absolutely like we are seeing a massive increase in people struggling with mental health. You know, anxiety and depression account for 80% of the diagnoses in Canada and mental health. Um, and, and it's, it, you know, I think that, stat is probably still true, but now the volume is just so much higher. Um, you know, I think the positive side of that is that if we're getting all these referrals, it suggests to me that people are now becoming more okay with like saying, Hey, something's going on and I need help, mm -hmm. which like, if that's what comes out of COVID, despite all of the heartache and despite all of the struggle, if what we come out with is people are more willing to ask for help. Um, that's a huge positive because mm -hmm. man, that has not been the case no. <laughs> historically. 
Yeah, yeah, you're right. And we see this also not just in our community, but in our churches mm-hmm. too, right? Even in the church, and we've talked about this personally, but the stigma still remains. Not just mental health, just the fact that we need help, which is so ironic because we're a bunch of people who say we can't save ourselves, therefore we need a savior to save us. That's literally the foundation of our faith. And yet even so, many of us, including myself at times, we struggle to ask for help and receive it. And there's this weird unnecessary feeling of shame of needing to ask for help. Mm -hmm. And I, as a pastor, have always tried to help our church family overcome those things. There should be no shame, especially in Christ. There is no longer any shame. And as much as we ask Christ to help us in our lives, we need to reach out to each other as a community. And, you know, I've always referred people to professional help when they do come to me for pastoral uh, counseling and services. I always let them know that I am not a trained clinical counselor by any means. I don't have the expertise. I think you should also consider going. And I have obviously referred people to you as well as you know, but um, to many people that I know and trust, right? Because I know that that's a great step. And I'm I'm not saying I'm going to leave or cop out, right? I'm going to walk this with you too. Mm -hmm. I'm going to journey with you as a pastor. That's my role and my training, but you also need other resources as well. Um, So I'm glad. And I know that your struggle to say no probably is really hard right now. (laughs) As as I'm hearing this, Mm -hmm. there's this huge, I guess, amount of need, I guess, in our community. Yeah, it's huge, and that it's one of the one of the biggest things we got to figure out somehow is how to be okay with not being okay as the church community. I say church, not as South Delta, although you guys are a part of this, but you know, Big C Church. You know, how do we how do we get that across? How do we help people understand that it's okay to struggle? It's okay that we don't have this figured out and it's not because we're not doing enough, right? Like if we truly believe in this gospel of grace that we love to toss around in evangelical circles, which as we should, because that's, is what it is. It is a gospel of grace. Then where do we get this idea that we have to have this all figured out? Like it's, it's, first of all, it's just not possible. If we had it all figured out, we would be God. And I'm sure people listening will agree with me that if we believe we're God, then either we're psychotic or we're heretical. One of the two. Um, you know, if we believe we're God, we've sorely missed the point and we've lost the gospel completely. Um, but this, I, like, I, 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 I struggle with this immensely because I, you know, part of my story um, is... I've dealt with mental health issues since I was six years old. And I know we've talked about this, Paul, and, and, I, and I'm pretty open about that. You know, and, and I didn't know what it was at the time, but I actually remember, I, re, I remember the day I noticed something was wrong. And I was six years old. I was riding my bike past my elementary school going, man, I, I'm, I'm really sad and I don't know why. And, I, and I'm like really sad a lot and I don't know why. And like something's weird, but but I didn't think about it because nobody talked about mental health then, especially in Christian circles. Um, but it was also like our culture and our upbringing have so much to do with this too, right? I mean, Asian culture, you know, North American culture, you know, different denominational cultures all mm-hmm. feed into this, right? Like I'm, I'm Mennonite by background. So how I ended up in a Baptist church, I don't know. My <laughs> ancestors are rolling over in their graves right now <laughs> because you couldn't really have two more opposite you know, denominations in some ways. And my wife's Anglican. So again, like how we ended up where we are, I have no idea. It's Mike Mahorter's fault. 
<laughs> um, we followed Mike because I lived with his son, Jared, when I was in university. And, and I'm glad we did. But it, it's, uh, you know, my culture, um, in my experience generally, and when you look through the history, like, we don't have feelings. Mennonites, we don't have feelings. Um, you know, and, and, and I, I love making fun of Mennonites. They're my people. And, you know, it's, they're, it's a wonderful, wonderful culture. Um, and I appreciate so much about it. And, you know, work ethic, we've got that figured out, you know, like, uh, but where we struggle sometimes um, is this concept of like not being okay, right? And, and it's, it's weird because not being okay is also part of it. You know, back in the day, you know, my, my family were farmers, you know, and, and one side were farmers and one side um, back in Ukraine manufactured all of the equipment that farms use. So, you know, we kind of did both sides on that one. Um, if somebody's barn burned down, like y'all lived in villages, and if somebody's barn burned down, literally, and not in the sort of new term, literally, like actually literally the whole village came running and rebuilt the barn in a week. How is that not our response to mental health? Right? You know, and I get it because it's different. It's practical. I mean, if you look through Mennonite history, and it's not just the Mennonites, right? But if you look at like MCC, what do we do? We go to Africa, we build wells, and we use that as a vehicle to tell people about the gospel. You know, like we're very practical people, which is awesome. And we know how to work hard, which is also why, you know, this is not an official Menno model, but like stuff doesn't happen in life if you work hard enough. You know, we, we've got the hard work down pat. Um, but we struggle on average with feelings because I think partly because of our history, right? You know, we came to Canada, you know, my, my grandparents were the first generation here in Canada and they came to Canada because in Ukraine at the time during the Russian revolution, my family was being murdered in their sleep and their houses burned down and all that sort of stuff. So the way they actually came was they were on a horse and buggy, literally being shot at by the red army as they fled for the border. And then they got to Canada with literally nothing. I mean, they had the shirts on their backs. And actually, I remember talking to my grandpa. And he's like, man, if the people in Canada had not embraced us the way they did, we would have been hooped. Like, because we literally had nothing. And irony of ironies, my grandfather, his alternative surface or service during the war, because, of course, World War II hits. And um, they're pacifists, so they don't fight. So they did alternative service. He got sent up north into First Nations communities oh. to teach English on a dog sled. <laughs> so I'm going like, can you imagine what he was thinking at the time? It's like, okay, I escaped Russia, I escaped Siberia, and I end up in northern Manitoba. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> um, but here's the thing. They didn't have the luxury of trying to figure out how they felt about things. They were just trying to survive. So, so you know, the culture uh, of the Mennonites, of my family members, like they didn't have time for this. And it's not because they said, oh, I don't have time for this, which is often what we say. <laughs> it's no, literally, they were just trying to survive. They were in just go, go, go. They were in that fight or flight response, right? The limbic systems kicked in and like, we're just trying to make ends meet and figure this out. Well, now we have the luxury of trying to figure out how we feel about this stuff. And we have the luxury of paying attention. The problem is, is it's not really a luxury. You know, if, if you don't struggle with mental health issues, then feelings kind of are a luxury, you know, and, and I'm glad they're there and they're important. Boy, have I had to learn that over the last 20 years is feelings are really important. Um, but they're not a luxury when you struggle with mental health. And I think that's where sometimes people struggle is understanding the difference between feeling sad and being depressed 
or having a little bit of test anxiety and having anxiety disorder. Like these are not the same thing. Um, and, and so it's, I think it's important we understand because it's easy to criticize the church. And I mean, I've been openly critical of the church over the years and in some ways, rightly so in some ways, probably I've had a bit of bee in my bonnet. Um, but, but it's important we understand like people, people do not respond the way they do because for no reason. There's always a reason. People behave in certain ways always. There's always a reason. And our job is to figure out what that is and then learn and grow mm-hmm. and figure this out together. Yeah, it's, it's, I love that imagery of if the barn burns down, then the whole, literally the whole village comes up and shows up, right? Whether it's, uh, hey, I got a bucket full of water. Hey, I got some hammer and nails. Like we show up with whatever we got and we work together. I think with mental health, when you ask the question, why aren't we doing that? And I, I agree, we should be doing that. And yet... I think a lot of people who want to help, they're going, what do I show up with? Like, I have no clue. I have no idea. I've not been trained in this. I've not experienced this, some of us at least. I know that's, that's not everyone. Some, some people do have wisdom and experience and all of that, but many of us don't. And I think that's one of the reasons why we sometimes don't show up. But one great advice I heard from a friend is, the fact that you show up with nothing and you have no idea what to do, but you show up is better than not showing up. Absolutely. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's when I felt guilty and shame at first and then conviction later to wait a minute. God's given me at least the knowledge, the wisdom, the people around me like yourself and others as well that I could ask and at least learn. What do I bring to this? Yeah. Right. When the figurative barn burns down, what do I bring? Yeah. What's my tool? What's my. And I think that's been a challenge for our church. Like that's SDBC, but like you said, the church, right? Um, at least here in North America. We can't speak, I guess, for every church, but yeah. I, I've seen it. And I think it's, it's time for us to learn. I mean, we've done the sanctuary course, we've loved it, and we, conti- mm-hmm. we want to continue. And that's let me just say the sanctuary step. course and, the, and sanctuary ministries, I have a ton of respect mm-hmm. for. I know quite a few of the leadership, uh, not not super personally, but I've interacted with them in, in a number of different ways. But I spent uh, a fair bit of time talking with Daniel Whitehead, the, the executive director there. And what I love about their stuff is I, f- I find a lot of the materials in Christian circles around mental health really fluffy. Mm-hmm. And, and just, you know, I look at what they say about mental health and I'm like, really? Um, and they struggle, um, or they're really good. There are some materials that are really good, but then there is this theology side, right? Like there is like, if, if we're Christian and we have faith, life and theology, like we can't extricate the two, you know? And, and I believe God is the God of mental health. Like he is no less present in terms of mental health than he is in anything in our lives. And so there is a theological aspect. And at the same time, I see that this is like almost polar opposite thing. It's like, okay, with theology, there's some really good theology. And then there's some really bad theology. Um, what I love about the sanctuary stuff is they have done a really good job, in my opinion, at doing both. And I have yet to find very many materials within Christian circles that do both well. I've found some stuff that does the mental health side pretty well, but then the theology really is lacking. And I've seen the other side where the theology may be great, but the understanding of mental health is kind of poor. 
Um, my, my impression from ever, from talking with them and then the materials I've seen is I really feel they, they really took their time and they really delved into both the, the, the mental health research and the theology to make sure that what they're putting out there does both really yeah. well. And, and I appreciate that yeah. so much. Our, our church family enjoyed it, right? Yeah. I, I myself participated in it as just a participant and loved it. And our table group, we loved it. And we thought this was the beginning of let's, let's break down the barriers in our church and our community, the stigma, let's, let's actually go for this. And then of course COVID hit. Um, but we're, we haven't, I hope we haven't let that go. We, yeah. our passion to, and desire to be good neighbors in all aspects of life. Like you said earlier, holistically, um, not just one aspect of it, right? Not just sharing tracks, not just sharing financial help, but when there is mental health off the charts right now with COVID, um, the, the whole community is crying out that they're saying we're in need and we as well are part of that. We are also in need and I want, I want to be there as a good neighbor, right? Um, that very definition of being a good neighbor is, is being aware of what the needs are and asking God, how can I, how have you gifted me and equipped me to serve? So let's go back to that question. When we say, what do I show up with to the burning barn? Um, if, you, if a Christian asks you that, as a Christ follower, I feel convicted, I need to do something and I need to help. I just don't know how, where do I even begin? Yeah. What, what would you say to those people? You know what, I, I think it, this is perfect timing because I before we got on the sanctuary, this is how my brain works. It's like pew, pew, pew <laughs> all over the place, right? Um, what you said was so important of like, I don't, you know, people show up and like, I don't know what to do. Um, I think we deal relatively well with physical health problems or what we call physical health. And sure. I won't get on that soapbox right now because <laughs> mental health is physical health. Yes. Um, but because we understand it better, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, like I've got a family member now who's going through cancer. We kind of understand what cancer is, even though there's all these different types and some of them we don't know enough about yet. Like we understand what's going on. You know, I think part of the challenge we have with mental health is it scares us. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason behind that, I think, is because like we fear what we don't understand. And this is across the board. It's not just mental health. You know, you see it in churches around theology. Or, or different backgrounds or beliefs, like, you know, number one cause of arguments in churches is people not understanding each other. Um, and so I think that's the root of what goes on with mental health is it scares us. And I get it because some of it is pretty spectacular. I remember the first time I, I came into contact with someone with schizophrenia. I didn't know that's what actually what it was at the time, but looking back, I'm like, yep, that's what that was. I was sitting in my church out by UBC. I went to University Chapel at the time. And in the middle of the sermon, this guy just marches right up to the pulpit and just interrupts the sermon, takes over and declares himself to be Jesus Christ. That's kind of scary. And it freaked me out because I'm like, I don't know what's going on here. And to his credit, the pastor actually handled it really well, uh, was very kind to the guy and, and managed it. But, but, and it's not always that spectacular, but we fear what we don't understand. And, and so I think the first step for all of us in the church is to really get intentional about understanding what it is we're talking about 
when we talk about mental health. Like, what mm -hmm. is depression? What is anxiety? You know, what is psychosis? What is trauma? And understanding yeah. trauma is a huge piece yeah. because there is a ton of it in the church. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and there, you know, sometimes we've now, caused by us. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's not all caused by us, yeah. but absolutely. Yeah. The, I mean, I've worked with, I can't even count how many yeah. clients who were traumatized within church walls. You know, and, and that's not to go, ooh, the church is bad. Not at all. It is to say we need to understand some of what's gone on over the last hundred years. I mean, past that as well. But we need to understand that, like, how we involve ourselves matters. And, and you know, it, it, I think the church is uniquely poised to do something incredibly powerful in mental health and with mental health and trauma and all this. However, I think it's a, a double-edged sword. Either we do this really well and we have a massive impact, or we continue to do this really poorly in some ways, um, and we have the opposite impact. I think, I think one, one of the big things that, that I see in churches now is people leaving the church because we're not doing this well. Um, and, and I just, it, it, oh, wow, okay. Here we go. I have this problem. I cry at really inopportune times. Um, <laughs> it's all good. It, and like, it, it just breaks my heart. Yeah, absolutely. Because this is what Jesus came for. Yeah. He came for the freaks and the geeks. He came for the people who didn't have it figured out. I mean, we kind of bantered a bit before we started. Like, look at David. I mean, David, I mean, where do we even start? You know, you look at Paul. I mean, he's now one of the biggest figureheads in Christianity who started by running around killing all the Christians and, and then had this conversion experience where God turned him upside down and dropped him on his head off a donkey, basically. And now he's like the figurehead. But let's not forget, he was the figurehead who had a thorn in his side that he couldn't figure out. And as far as we can tell, never did. You know, you think about um, Zacchaeus. You think about um, Abraham. I mean, Abraham is the father of many. In, in, in many respects, we are all descendants of Abraham. He didn't have it all figured out either. You know, um, Jacob, you know, like all these key figures in, 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 the, in our history didn't have it figured out. You know, the, the disciples, I mean, <laughs> I think the term I used when we were bantering was like, they're a bunch of bumbling idiots. <laughs> And Jesus was right there. Yeah. Like they had the advantage of literally sitting next to Jesus. And then we have Jesus. And this might push some people maybe, um, but like Jesus didn't have it all figured out. I mean, certainly, I, and I'm not saying he, he isn't omniscient, he isn't all-knowing, he isn't like, no, 100%. I believe what the gospel says, he, but he was also fully human. You know, it is clear in the Gospels that Jesus was fully human. He struggled with everything the rest of us struggled with. He didn't sin because of it, which is the part we haven't figured out yet. Um, but he was fully human. That means he knows what it's like to be anxious. Like Garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood, no matter how you interpret that, like he was anxious. That's what was going on there. God if there's any other way that this shall come to pass, please let it be so, because like I'm outside my window of tolerance here, you know? And so if it's okay for, for Jesus Christ, who is the only reason we are where we are right now, 
then maybe it's okay for us too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the gospel, right? I've been, I've been preaching through the Galatians in our um, church sermon series on Sundays. And that's the whole point, right? The anti-gospel that Paul fights against in that, in that context is you got to do something. You got to do more. You got to be better, right? Yeah. And Paul keeps coming back to know Christ is enough. Christ is enough. You don't need to be better. You don't need to earn the Father's favor. You have it in him. And, and I think that's the sadness that we see when we say, well, you got to pray more. You got to work harder. You got to read the Bible a little bit more and memorize these verses. Then you shouldn't struggle with depression, anxiety or anything else. Like that's sometimes an old school way of thinking. And um, like not to just point fingers at people, but we need to stop the anti-gospel of saying Christ is enough. You need more. Mm-hmm. We can be real with ourselves. Like you said, David, right? Like in the Psalms, he's so vulnerable with his own feelings and he's the king of Israel, the man after God's own heart. Mm-hmm. And yet even he claims to not have it all together, cries out to the Lord all the time, desperately, sometimes a little bit whiny, sometimes mm-hmm. sobbing, sometimes just praising and in love with his God. And he's all over the place and yet he's very real and honest. And at every step along the way, he's just calling for God. Mm-hmm. I remember someone, I just had a daughter, right? And mm-hmm. um, someone mentioned to me recently that humans are the only probably like known, you know, race or, or being that is so dependent from beginning to end. Like animals, they come out and some of them like walk within minutes. Animals, like they know how to feed, they know how to hunt within like a few days. Like humans, like my daughter right now is so dependent on my wife, Sarah. <laughs> like it's not even funny. She would not survive a single day. Yeah. And it's like God somehow taught us in the very way he created us that we are to need him. We are to be dependent Mm -hmm. on him. Without him, we are nothing. And scripture doesn't just say that figuratively. He he means it. Yeah. And I think in the mental health world and and, in this conversation, we must not forget that. Because oftentimes, I love your answer to like the educating part. Let's get to learn if we don't know. Because let's not fear the unknown. Let's ask God and let's ask his his people that he's equipped. How do we learn now? How do we educate ourselves? Because when we send missionaries out, they would pick up the language, the culture, the food, the law, the law of the land. They will learn all this. They don't naturally just know. It's not like the matrix. You download it into your system and you go. You yeah. go there, you learn, you make mistakes, you learn again, you humble yourself. And if, if this is figuratively a mission field, people who need the love of Christ and his grace through his church, his people, people who are suffering with mental health of all sorts, if that's a mission field, then should we not learn? Just mm-hmm. as we learn a foreign language, just as we, as we learn a foreign culture, should we not yeah, learn? Absolutely. Um, so. And if I can just uh, jump in right now, with my own experience with mental health, one of the most powerful things I experienced was when my mentor looked at me as I was explaining where I was at, and she just said, you know what, I think that you need more help than I can give you. And just being able to say she didn't have all the answers, she could no longer help me, I needed to go to a professional. Um, Cause I was just telling her about, I was in a season of my life where I ended up missing work because I couldn't decide which shirt to wear because it was just too much and I needed to stay in bed. Um, and it was in that moment that she realized, okay, I'm not just going to quote scripture at her. I'm not going to tell her to do better. I'm going to tell her that she needs more than I can give her. And so now having experienced that myself as a Christian walking people through this, I like to just, um, 
inform myself on different churches that have counseling programs, just so if someone says something to me, I can say, well, actually, you can go here. You can go to Cedar Park, Peace Portal, Village. These all have counselors because I don't have all the answers. And it's clear that you need something more than I can give you right now, because if you don't even know how to get out of bed this morning, you're not just going to need a list of scriptures right now. Absolutely. They actually talk about this when you train as a counselor. They talk about the importance of when you sit with clients of having what what they call, I can't remember who coined the term, but of having a not knowing stance, mm-hmm. you know, because it's it's really easy. We're human and, and we we think, oh, I've been depressed, so I must know what it's like for you. And if you're fortunate like me and you've experienced depression and anxiety and a whole bunch of other things in the middle, it's really easy. You're like, oh, man, I know what that's like. No, we don't. Mm-hmm. You know, and even if we don't have that experience or that training, um, it's not our job to know everything, mm-hmm. right? I, I, I do some work with a guy named Fred Wells, um, who's a local guy here, coaches softball, and he runs a charity called 140 Sports. And uh, we were doing a workshop for Thompson Rivers University for their athletics department recently. And uh, he was talking and he, he said, you know, uh, and he was talking in the context of how do we help, you know, students and athletes and our kids. And it says, as a parent, it's not our job to know everything. It's our job to want to know. And it's our job to show up. You know, and, and when it comes to mental health, that, that's the truth. We don't, we don't know everything. I mean, you know, I, I've been referred to as an, a, a mental health expert. I shy away from that. But in some forms, like I've done enough training and I've been around the block. I know a few things, I guess. But like, I don't know everything. You know, you talk about how your mentor referred you to somebody because it went outside. We do that all the time. Like we now have, I keep losing count because we keep adding people. I think we have 17 counselors now. Um, Like I refer out to them all the time and vice versa. We do this constantly and out to other people. You know, if somebody's struggling, well, this isn't my wheelhouse. I want to send you to so-and-so because this is what they do all day long. You know, it's not our job to know everything because I sure as heck don't. And I've been around the block a few times now in mental health. I don't know. I, my, my grandpa, when he was about 93, he was a pastor for years and years and years and years. And I was the, you know, I was the weird kid at 13 who was bemoaning the fact that I hadn't figured everything out yet. And he just looks at me and he goes, Andrew, I'm old. And I don't know half of what I want to know yet. And that's always stuck with me. It is like, if we can maintain that, then we can show up in our relationships with people. And, and relationships is the number one thing that helps people with mental health. Um, there's lots of other tools, lots of other things, meds, treatments, you name it. They're all really important. But when you, but when you look at the actual research, it comes down to relationships. Um, and one thing that I think we all need to be reminded of sometimes is in, in the way God has designed us, he knew this. We are relational beings. You want to give somebody psychological problems? You can take the most psychologically healthy person in the world and you stick them on a couch with nothing to do, nobody around. Within three days, they will have psychological problems. So you mean COVID? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> this is why we're struggling, yeah. right? Yeah. And wow. it's, it's built into the language of who we are. We're human beings. This is how we refer to ourselves. We're human beings, right? We're not human doings. And just, I didn't make that up. I stole it from somebody. I don't remember who it was. Um, but 
but it's built into the language of how we describe yeah. ourselves. But so often, and I think this is something we do in the church probably more often than not, or no, I shouldn't say more often than not, more often than average, um, is we, we, we look at things as if we're human doings, including our relationship with God. You know, if we were supposed to be human doings, the Bible would be a giant rule book. And it's not like, and there's probably some people falling off their chairs right now, but that's not the point of the Bible. The Bible is, is, a, a, it is the greatest love story ever. And I'm not talking about turning into some fluffy love story because we have some of that in Christian circles too, uh, where it's like, ooh, it's all about love and it's all lovey-dovey and nothing else matters. No, that's not what I'm saying. But the Bible is a description of the greatest relationship that ever has existed and ever will exist between the God of the universe and humanity and all of the sacrifice he has made for us, all of the ways he has shaped us and molded us over thousands of well, millions of years, in my opinion, um, to where we are now, where we have direct access to the God of the universe. And, and, but the number one thing that's going to get in the way of that is if we take to heart that we're not good enough. And the hard part is we aren't good enough, <laughs> right? We don't measure yeah. up. That's sin. Yeah. That is why Jesus exists. That's why yeah. the gospel exists. Yeah. And man, if you struggle with mental health, do you ever need the gospel? Yes. And do you ever need the knowledge that it's okay that you don't measure up? Yeah. Yeah. It's okay that you're not there yet. It's yeah. okay that, man, like... I screw things up every single day of my life to the point where like, it's actually painful to me to look at what I do every day. And like, I'm for, I just turned 40 and I still haven't figured this out. And I know for some of you who may be hearing this, that's still really young. <laughs> uh, <laughs> don't feel quite as young anymore, but our brain still thinks I'm 16. Um, but it's like, man, the gospel is the greatest tool ever in terms of trying to help people understand their value, which Absolutely. is right at the core of what most people's mental health struggle with. Yeah. Yeah. Is how, like, how am I valuable yes. when I struggle every day of my life? Yeah. This is also why when, when I interact with people, I'm as open as I am about my own struggle with mental health for the last 34 years. You know, when I was struggling with depression, like I was actively suicidal. Like, so when I work with clients, like I'm, and I tell them, you know, I get it. I don't get exactly what it's like for you because I'm not you, but, but I get waking up and going, I don't want to be here. And I'm, and actually making plans on how you're going to make that happen. Um, I get that. And I was a Christian then too, you know, and I, you know, I was, I didn't know half of what I know now and I won't know half of what I'll know in another 20 years, but like, I, I believed in God. I was baptized. I, I studied theology to the degree that I could as a 16 year old, you know, like I, I believed all this stuff and that's where I was at. And, and thankfully now that's not where I'm at and it hasn't been for a long time, but now I've got this lovely raging anxiety disorder that more times than not, when I wake up and roll out of my bed, my legs just about give out under me. I mean, the beginning of this week with a bunch of stuff that's been going on this week, like I just about lost my mind. You know, and the advantage I have now is I understand how this works better. And I turned to my wife and I said, I'm about to lose my mind. <laughs> you know, 10, 10 years ago, even I would not have said that to her. 
because I still believe I got to do this on my own. You know, I, it, it, that is the number one thing I think that keeps us from really embracing this gospel of grace and this God who understands us and this God who doesn't care that we, you know, in the sense of he doesn't care that we're broken. He doesn't care that we haven't figured it out. He cares that he's there for us, you know, and he's there for us in ways we can't even imagine. You know, one of the, one of my greatest joys and and I can say this here, can't say it in all contexts, although I don't usually follow those rules, um, is like there is stuff happening just in our clinic and our little clinic. Well, it's not so little anymore, I guess, but our little clinic is this little microcosm. Um, there are things happening there that I cannot explain, you know, including how we've gone from like me, myself and I in a day and a half of clients and my wife in the art studio to where we're at now. Like it doesn't actually make logical sense. You know, when I look at our, our business model, you know, which we have a terrible business model. Um, I mean, we're, we keep the lights on and God has blessed us immensely, but like we've done $350,000 worth of subsidized service in five years with no outside funding, you know, I don't know how we've done that. It's not because we're so brilliant, I'll tell you that much. You know, it's, we've had people coming out of the, I, the way our Step Forward program started, which is our subsidy program that subsidizes our own services, that started because we had people handing us checks. And they weren't big checks, um, most of them. Like it was 25 bucks here, 50 bucks there. We've had some, I had one person who was like on, I think they were on income assistance and they said, I can't give you much, but here's five bucks, go get some people some help. I just, well, in fact, I did lose it. Uh, like that is just mind blowing to me. Um, but that's how our subsidy program started. I had to go to our account and go like, how do we do this? <laughs> like we're not a charity and we had to explain to people, we can't give you taxes. And they're like, I don't care. Um, and it's our associates and it's churches. We've had churches hand us checks to fund people to come get help with us. You know, but but the largest donation we've ever had was six thousand dollars, which is like just so we're clear, that's a lot of money to me, um, and it is a big check. But like six thousand and three hundred and fifty thousand, like usually when you're doing that kind, like you're getting much bigger checks. Mm -hmm. You know, and it, but this is the power that exists in the gospel. This is to me, this is what we could do with mental health. The average church budget around here, as far as I understand in South Delta, um, is anywhere from half a million dollars or slightly under to like just over a million dollars on average. If every church put 1% of their budget towards mental health, our entire clinic could run for a year and everything could be free. Like just to put it in perspective and, and I don't know how many active clients we have right now, but we have over 5,000 clients since we, since we started. And most of them are still active in one form or another. We could run our entire clinic for a year for free if every church gave 1% of their budget. And I'm not suggesting that's what churches should do either. I'm trying to bring some perspective of, we don't need to suddenly devote half our budget to mental health, because I think sometimes what hangs us up is, is this idea that we have to somehow like give all of our money to mental health and this is gonna cost us a ton of money. No, it doesn't have to, you know, and not every church has to get into running mental health programs. Right. You know, one of the conversations that I've had with a lot of pastors around here is how do we 
how do we get churches working together more in terms of programming so that we're not duplicating each other? You know, and this is true with mental health. We don't all need to be running the sanctuary mental health course. I mean, I think it could be helpful if every church had it, but we don't have to. You know, LBC's running it. You guys are running it. Um, I believe Cedar Park is running it, or they have anyways, I know. Uh, we don't all have to be doing the same things, and we probably shouldn't be. Do we all need to have mental health awareness? Absolutely. Do we all need to educate our congregations and our leadership? Absolutely. Um, and it starts with leadership. If, if leadership in a church isn't buying in, the church will never buy in. That's just the truth. I don't care if it's mental health or otherwise. If the leaders haven't bought in, it's going nowhere. And I still get some sideways glances when I talk to church leadership. When I say, hey, like, let's sit down. I say, I've got a pre-canned course on Mental Health 101 that will give you, you know, in an hour and a half, we will go through the very basic foundation of what you need to know about mental health. I got to tell you, it's been hard. And I don't get paid for this. I don't want to get paid for this. I'm not paid right now. I don't get paid by churches to come and do this thing because I don't want to. I, I like, this is my heart. I want churches to have the education. Um, and, but I get sideways glances. It's kind of like in sports with Fred Wells. We, we laugh because we're through 140 sports. We're working together to infuse mental health training into youth sports, which is so cool. Um, but we talk to parents. Hey, we're, we want to, you know, teach your kids how to do mindfulness. We want to teach them, you know, how to manage their anxiety and manage their mood and, and Bill are, well, I don't know. Whereas, you know, Fred says, hey, you know what? I can, I can raise your kid's batting average by five points. So for those of you who don't follow baseball, I think baseball is life. But for those of you who don't follow baseball, five points is a very, 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 very small margin. It's the answer we get is, okay, here's a check for $5,000 and let me know what else you need. What? Now, little do they know that we go, okay, <laughs> and we take the check and we train and we help them increase their batting average, but we're still doing all this other stuff because yeah. guess what? If we train your kid on how to manage their mental health properly and anxiety, their batting average is going to go mm -hmm. up and they're going to be better athletes. Mm -hmm. Like, and this is what's cool because cachet is important. You know, I can say things, you guys can say things, but like if a professional athlete like Tyler Mott says, yeah. hey, I deal with depression and here's what I'm doing about it, suddenly everybody's listening, which is what I love about Tyler Mott. And we actually were putting his jersey up in our clinic and I'm, and uh, it's, I, through Mike Bernstein at the Vancouver Giants, um, who's an awesome dude. And we get to work with the Vancouver Giants around mental health, which is super cool. He actually, I bought two jerseys. I sent them in through him to the trainers and they got Tyler to sign it. So Tyler, if you ever hear this, thank you. That was very kind of you. Um, because um, sometimes we need cachet, you know? And, and so we need people speaking up. We need people speaking up in leadership, talking about, hey, I struggle. This is what I struggle with. And we don't need to tell everybody everything. I'm very open, but there's lots I don't tell people, right? It's not about suddenly burying your entire life in front of everybody. In fact, that's really unhealthy and we do that too sometimes. Um, but it's the more we can get it out there and the more people in leadership can get it out there beyond the lip service, we can't as, lip, uh, as leadership say, yes, mental health is great and you guys go do that, right? That does not work. People won't pay attention and, and we lose all credibility, you know, and we support this idea that we all struggle with anyways of like, you know, if we just pray enough, we read our Bible enough and we're Christian enough, we're going to be okay. And like, 
we're going to be perfect. And we sometimes as leaders, this is interesting, we sometimes as leaders don't realize the impression we give other people, right? Um, my, so I'll say my daughters have given me permission to say whatever I end up saying about them. They're, they're amazing kids and they just want people to, to learn from their experience. So I know people sometimes worry about people talking about their kids and thank you for worrying. That is important that you ask your kids permission before you start talking about them. But my, one of my daughters was struggling with perfectionism you know, and some anxiety around that. And we were struggling knowing how to help because explicitly, I mean, I tell my kids, both of them every single day, I don't care what grades you get. I don't care, you know, what level of sports you play. I don't even care what sport you play. I want you to have fun. I want you to work hard. I want you to do your best. That's all I care about. The rest doesn't matter. You know, I don't care if you play house or if you play on the rep team or any of that. Don't care. Um, but she was still struggling. So like we were scratching our heads going, huh, what do we do? So we went and saw our good friend who's a counselor and said, Hey, like, what are we missing here? You know? And she listened to the story and she knows my daughter as well. And so she said, so how often does she see you guys make mistakes? And I was like, well, I mean, like we tell them we make mistakes all the time and we tell them like you're allowed to make mistakes and to the best of our ability, when they make mistakes, we don't ream them out. We don't rake them over the coals. Like she's like, yeah, and that's great. And how often do they get to see it? I'm like, I don't know. She's like, and she knows Meg and I really well. She's like, well, you guys are two like fairly high achieving, high performing, driven people who, you know, by outward appearance look like you kind of have it figured out. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you seeing this or listening to this, we don't have it figured out. <laughs> We're bumbling through it just like everybody else. But how often did my daughter see that? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You know, and, and that was really helpful. Yeah. yeah. Um, because like I, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Because here I am trying to do the opposite and trying to be explicit. So what we ended up doing is now we intentionally make mistakes in front of them. Like we actually practice making mistakes in front of them. <laughs> and it helps. Yeah. Because then they see it. Yeah. I, that, that brings me up. Um, Jeff Vanderstel, it's a guy, it's a pastor down in um, Washington State. And I, I admire a lot of the things that he talks about. And one of them is mental health. But also he talks about um, how he had, a, he had a friend who was becoming a pastor and he wanted to mentor him. And he said, okay, so you and your wife, you just got married. Do you guys have an example of what a godly marriage looks like? He said, no, my parents weren't Christians. I've, I've never seen that in action. Well, how would you ever learn if you've never seen it? Mm -hmm. So he invited him over to live with him and his wife and their kids, literally mm -hmm. in the same house. And he's like, I'm not recommending everyone to do this, but this is what <laughs> I did with my friend and his wife. And they literally lived with them. So they naturally saw some of the fights that he and his wife had. And every time they felt awkward about it and said, oh, we're just going to head into our room. He would stop them and say, no, you need to see this. You need to see that we fight and also how we fight. And eventually how we need to press on into the grace of Christ and forgive each other, work towards reconciliation. Sometimes it's easier. Sometimes it's more difficult. You need to actually witness it and experience it because that's what mentoring is. It's not us saying, here's the perfect couple. Yeah. I'll pair them up with you. It's here's a real couple. And here's what you might glean from it. Yeah. And, and I've always thought, and he used that as an example of true discipleship. Mm -hmm. Discipleship isn't, okay, perfect people come sign up to be a mentor. Yeah. No, it's actually real people. Are you confident enough in the grace of Christ 
that your vulnerable moments are okay to be seen sometimes by some people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because you don't have to be perfect. And that brings up a good point. We need to wrap up today because we're, we're running in overtime, but I wish we (laughs) could go on forever. Um, But I, I've just learned so much, even within just the last few minutes here of you talking about the need for educating ourselves, Mm -hmm. the fact that we can learn and the fact that relationships and communities are really what matters. Even the example of your daughter, the community that's actually authentic really matters. Um, As a church, I think we're called to live that out, not to be perfect people, but to be people who are centered around Christ who are real in this world. And mental health is real. We don't even need to hear the quotes of your stats and how busy you guys are to know that mental health is not only real in our lives every day, but also, especially with COVID, we're seeing struggles, very real struggles in our own families, friends, churches, and communities. So as a church, I think we're called. Mm -hmm. We're called to serve, to be good neighbors, to love like Jesus, and to to press into these relationships as God has called us and placed us. And if, if any of us or if all of us are struggling right now listening to this, not just from the perspective of needing to help and jump in there, but if you need community and help, we're launching support groups, we have information on our website, we have some funding for you to um, take advantage of, to go to places like Alongside You or elsewhere to seek counseling services and to seek help. Like Andrew said, there's lots of um, demand right now and maybe you'll be put on a wait list at some places, but we wanna help you, Mm -hmm. even if it's with funding, we have some money put aside for you to utilize and the support group of course we want to serve you we want to serve each other we want you to now also help other people and serve alongside us not to uh, take your phrase <laughs> take there your but i love that that's alongside okay. you that, alongside that's, us. there's a reason we are called what we are called exactly. and that's why but let's 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 do this together by the help of our lord jesus christ mm-hmm. um, yeah. who like you said have been there have walked this earth have felt the struggles mm-hmm. and yet push through to give us victory. Let's trust in him and move forward together as a community. Andrew, thank you so much for spending so so much awesome time with us and sharing your insights and your experiences. Um, We hope that this isn't the last time we collaborate. I know I've been into your office and you've been into ours now, um, but I hope we'll be able to collaborate more into the future as well. I Mm -hmm. just value your your contribution to our community as South Delta um, in general, but also to the churches around. Thank you so much for your service and thank you for for your time. Oh, thank you. Appreciate all you guys are doing. I'd love to collaborate more. You know, our our heart is to to work in our own backyard here and and figure out how to help people. And, uh, you know, don't need to have mental health training to help somebody with mental health. Mm -hmm. Sit and listen. Yes. And actually listen. That's the number one thing we can do and we can all do that. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thanks so much, guys. 